The following message was given at Hope Church of Knoxville. For more information about Hope Church, please visit our website at hopeknox.com. introducing Dr. Hamilton. Uh, while I was at seminary, I had uh, several different classes with him and uh, was able to meet with him once a month for a thing called Shepherding Group, which was a, a joy. And I continue to listen to his sermons. And I would say, and I've said this to him before, that uh, him and, and my mentor, Dr. Payne, no other two people have shaped my understanding of Scripture than these two men. So it's an incredible joy for me to get to introduce him and uh, have his family here as well. And so I want to ask him to come up before we do. I want to go ahead and open us up in prayer, and then I'll invite him up. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, blessing us with uh, Dr. Hamilton and his family this morning. I pray that you will give him the words to speak. I pray that uh, your word will pierce our hearts, that it, uh, you will open our ears and our eyes to see uh, Christ from this text this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I feel right at home here. Um, when my wife and I moved to Houston, Texas back in 2003, we were hoping to find a good church, and I despaired of finding a good church. It felt like every place was like Lakewood with, uh, with uh, Mr. Osteen. And, um, and then Jill found this little place called Providence Baptist Church, and Providence met in the gymnasium of a, a, another church, and there was a room built onto the gym called the ladies' parlor that felt a lot like this room. You know, it was about this size, about this length, a bunch of big families devoted to, to the Lord and to expository preaching. And then a couple of years after uh, us getting there, we, uh, Jill and I got involved in a church plant on the other side of Houston. And guess what? We met at a gymnasium, and uh, it was a room about like this. And uh, again, uh, big families, uh, devotion to expository preaching, and, and uh, we, we loved the Lord and had great fellowship together. So this just feels, feels like being back home. Uh, I want to invite you to open uh, the Bible this morning to Psalm 110, and I would invite you to stand with me, and I'm going to read Psalm 110, and then just as Jeremy did at the end of the reading, I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord, and if you feel so inclined to say thanks be to God, I would welcome you to do that. So if you'll stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word, and we will read Psalm 110, I'll read it, and then... We'll go forward. So Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would bless 
our hearing of Your Word this morning. We pray that You would speak to us through it. We pray that You would thrill our hearts with the hope of the King who is going to come on a white horse to conquer all His enemies. And Lord, we pray that You would cause us to be devoted servants of King Jesus between now and then. And we ask it in His name. Amen. You may be seated. Years ago, I read about these uh, sentinels at the tomb of the unknown soldier in Washington, D.C. And it was striking to me the regulations for these guys. All of them are, are drawn from a particular cavalry unit of the U.S. Army. They, they have to be a particular height. If I remember correctly, it's something like between uh, 6 feet 2 and 6 feet 4 inches tall. They can be no shorter. They can be no taller. Uh, they, they have to have a waist that is 32 or less. Uh, there, there are all these very strict parameters that these, ju- these guys just have to be born into. And then they, they prepare their uniforms with exact discipline. The typical sentinel who will guard the tomb of the unknown soldier uh, at, at Arlington Cemetery in Washington, D.C. will spend eight hours prior to his day on, on guard preparing his uniform. Uh, starching and, and ironing his, his, his uh, apparel, shining his shoes. It's, it's a long process and everything must be exact. And then, while they are on duty, they take exactly 21 steps one way. And, and if I remember correctly, I think they stop and pause and count to 21. And then they take exactly 21 steps the other way. And they are trained to walk in such a way that their heads don't move up and down. They do not look right or left. They, they, they move evenly and smoothly, back and forth, back and forth. And these guys are devoted to what they're doing. Uh, several years ago, a hurricane blew through Washington, D.C., and there were trees being blown over in the cemetery, and these guys kept marching back and forth through, through the, the, the horizontal rain of that hurricane. These men are devoted to the United States of America. They are devoted to honoring the, the, the unknown dead who have, who have fought in the wars of this country. And I talk about these guys because I think that when we consider their devotion, their precision, their, their attention to detail, it should cause us to think about what we're devoted to. Because we're not devoted to a mere earthly nation. We are devoted to a king who's going to come. Recently, there there was a book published uh, called uh, Why Liberalism Failed. And what this guy is arguing is that liberal democracy and the political order, he's arguing that it is a failure. He's arguing, this guy Patrick Deneen, he's arguing that what, what our democracy and what our society is set up to do is create self-centered, self-gratifying, autonomous people who will necessarily become more and more fragmented, less and less unified, and thus there will be more and more political divisions among us, less and less ability to to get along, and there will be more and more of this divisiveness that we see in our culture. And as I was thinking about this book, I I was thinking, well, what is supposed to replace this? What is going to to solve this? If liberal democracy is going to fail, after all of the other attempts at civilization have failed, what's the solution going to be? And the answer to that question is in Psalm 110 for us. 
the, the, the plan of God for the world is not for democracy to be spread throughout the world. The plan of God for the world is for the world to have a king. For the world to have a king. And his name is Jesus. As we approach Psalm 110 this morning, um, I, I, I want to uh, just put a few thoughts in your mind from earlier things in the Bible. So the first thing I would invite you to think about is the way that when God created man and he put him in the garden, we read in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 that after God blessed the man and the woman and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, he then said, have dominion over, and he listed all of the animal kingdoms. So God gave Adam in the garden dominion, and dominion is a royal word. Dominion is a kingly word. Dominion is what a king exercises. So the, the Bible doesn't say Adam in the garden was a king, but the Bible presents Adam doing, being told by God to do what a king does. And then uh, a few verses later, we read that Adam was in the garden to work it and to keep it. And those two terms, work and keep, those two Hebrew verbs are only used elsewhere in the Pentateuch to describe what the Levites do at the tabernacle. They're supposed to work and keep or serve and guard the tabernacle. And what that does, once we, as we read through the Pentateuch, and if, if we notice this and we put it together, we think to ourselves, well, it's almost like Adam is a, a priest or a Levite in the Garden of Eden because he's supposed to do for the garden what the Levites are supposed to do for the tabernacle. So I would suggest to you that at creation, God made Adam as a royal priest. And then, you know what happens. They get kicked out of the garden. And uh, as the story develops, eventually Adam's descendants grow into a, a nation called Israel. And God brings Israel out of Egypt. And he gets them out to Mount Sinai. And he says to them in Exodus chapter 19, You will be to me a kingdom, royal Right, kings, you will be to me a kingdom of priests. So Adam in the garden is a, a royal priest. Israel is a, a royal priesthood. And then earlier in the Bible, in Genesis 14, we had seen this figure called Melchizedek, who was both a king and a priest. And then as you go forward from Genesis 9, or Exodus 19, Genesis 14, eventually you get to David. And David is obviously a king. And I would just observe here that the only two things to be anointed in the Pentateuch are the tabernacle and the priests. So when God commissions Samuel to go anoint one of the sons of Jesse king, that, that anointing is going to color the, the king with a kind of priestly overtone or a temple connection because it's the tabernacle and the priesthood that are anointed. And now, now David the king, after Saul, is going to be anointed. And then David does some things that are priestly. You remember the way that when the ark was brought, brought into Jerusalem, he was described as wearing a linen ephod. That's priestly apparel. So David is, is in a sense, a kind of royal priest. And as we come to Psalm 110, I think some very important things are happening uh, that I, that I want to try to develop for us as we think about this psalm together this morning. First, First thing, let me draw your attention to the superscription of the psalm where it says a psalm of David. This has historically been understood to mean that David wrote this psalm. And Jesus concluded that David wrote this psalm. You remember these interchanges 
that Jesus had with people when, for instance, he, he said to his, the Pharisees in Jerusalem in, in Matthew 22, I'm reading from verse 42, he says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And then in verse 43, Jesus says to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Now, there are two very important things here. First, Jesus is attributing the words of Psalm 110, because that's what's going to come up right after this. Jesus is attributing the words of Psalm 110 to David. Jesus is saying, David said that. Second, notice that Jesus said, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? So Jesus is saying that when David spoke Psalm 110, he spoke those words in the spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit, like what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, was carrying David along. Men were born along by the Spirit as they prophesied. So David, in the Spirit, says this in Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord, and notice how in, in the text of Psalm 110, the word Lord, you've got what's, what are called small caps, where the R is a capital R, but it's kind of squashed. And the D is a capital D, but it's kind of squashed. When you see that, you're seeing Yahweh. Yahweh stands behind that. When, when, when you have Lord with small caps, the translator is telling you, I'm, I'm, I'm putting the word Lord here for the divine name Yahweh. So David says, Yahweh says to my Lord. Who is David's Lord? Well, I, I submit to you that what David is doing is he's saying... I'm going to tell you, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what Yahweh is going to say to the future king from my line. Because David knows 2 Samuel 7. Whether 2 Samuel was written during David's lifetime or not, David heard the prophecy from the prophet Nathan, where the Lord says, I'm going to raise up your seed after you, your descendant after you, and I will, he will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom Forever, David knows that prophecy. And David apparently now considers the future king from his line to be his Lord. He hasn't even been born yet, but David is recognizing his authority. Yahweh says to my Lord. Now, at, at this point, I also I want to I back up a little bit again from Psalm 110 and think about what's going on in this psalm. Because where this psalm is placed is very significant. Where this psalm is placed in the book of Psalms. Um, so I just want to make a, a, a couple of observations here. And if you want to talk about this more later, we can maybe have a conversation afterwards. Um, or, or, or I can point you to some things to read. You may be familiar with, with the book of Psalms and the way that some of the superscriptions... Um, are, are, they have historical information in them. They have information that tells, tells you about David's life, like Psalm 51, for instance. And, and the superscription says of David, when he went into Bathsheba and the prophet Nathan came to him, right? So Psalm 51, is, it's telling us we can tie that to 2 Samuel chapter 11, where that incident took place. Well, all of that historical, all those historical superscriptions those only happen in books one and book two of the Psalter. And then book three, or book two ends, Psalm 72 is the last of, of, of the first two books of the Psalms. And that one is, 
is given a superscription of Solomon. And so it's almost like you've got all this his, these, these psalms that are tied to David's particular historical events in his life in books one and two. And then you get to Solomon at the start of book three, end of book two. And then at the end of book three in Psalm 89, it sounds like the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Because David is saying the, throne, the crown lies in the dust and the walls of the city have been broken down. So it sounds like the Babylonians have come and they've, they've, they've overrun Jerusalem. They've dethroned the Davidic heir and, and they've taken the people off into exile. And then the last psalm of book four, look, look with me, just turn the page back a page or two to Psalm 106, verse 47. This sounds like the people are crying out to the Lord from exile. Psalm 106, 47. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations. So if you're familiar with books like Deuteronomy, you know that many times the Lord said to Israel, if you go into the land of Canaan and you break this covenant, I'm going to scatter you among all the nations. But then he also promised that if they turned back to him, he would gather them from the nations. So Psalm 106, verse 47 sounds like the people are saying, Save us, Lord, and gather us from all the nations to which you've scattered, scattered us. Now, this, this, this little storyline of the people entering the land, being driven out of the land, and then being regathered to the land, that's really the whole story of the Old Testament. That's what happens in the Old Testament. They enter into the land of Canaan, uh, think Joshua. They start breaking the covenant in Judges. That continues through the narratives to the end of the book of Kings when they're exiled from the land. Kings ends with the people exiled from the land. And then, when you keep reading into books like uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, what happens? Well, they're being restored to the land because they've cried out to the Lord, just as Moses said they would. So I think what I want to suggest what's happening in the book of Psalms is that same story is being impressionistically suggested, where you trace through the life of David in books 1 and 2, then you get to Solomon and his sons, the destruction of Jerusalem in Psalm 89, and then uh, exilic, uh, despair and crying out to the Lord and affirming that God reigns in Psalms 90 through 106. And then they're crying out to the Lord for deliverance. And then look at Psalm 107, verse, verses 2 and 3. Psalm 107, verse 2. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands. It sounds like it's happened. Now, here's what I want to suggest to you. David, David is thinking about the future and David knows we're going to get exiled and the Lord is going to regather us. How does he know this? Because he read Deuteronomy. And David knows that when they're regathered, the Lord's going to raise up that future king that's been promised from his line. Because the Lord said in 2 Samuel 7, verses 13 and 14, I will raise up your descendant after you and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David is expecting the future king from my line is going to reign Forever. And then, and then we get this, this Psalm 107, which sounds like the regathering. And then we come to Psalm 110, and David is talking about the future king. And then before we look further at this, Psalms 111 through 117 are sometimes called uh, the Hallel Psalms because they resonate with this word Hallel, which means praise. It's the first part of the word Hallelujah. So it's, it's like what we have in Psalm 110 is a psalm about the conquest of the future king from the line of David. 
And then what follows that are, is, is an outbreak of hallelujahs. And, and then I think as the Psalter continues, it continues to think about what's going to happen when the future king comes. Just one instance of that. Psalm 118, that they're saying in verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And you may remember where that psalm gets quoted in the New Testament. It gets quoted at the triumphal entry. So, so I'm suggesting to you that the psalms are looking forward for Jesus. And the reason that Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament is because the New Testament authors got it. They understood. Psalm 110 is about the conquest of the future king from David's line. And the New Testament authors understood that. And they're, they're quoting it all over the New Testament for that reason. So this psalm is about our king. This psalm is about the coming of the king who's going to make all things new and make all things right. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord. David says, Yahweh says to the future king from my line, sit at my right hand. Let me draw your attention back to the, the last word of, of Psalm 109, right above this. Psalm 109, verse 31 says, He, the Lord, stands at the right hand of the needy one. Notice, the Lord is standing at the right hand of the needy one. I think the needy one is the afflicted future king from David's line. And then after the Lord stands at the right hand of the needy one, the Lord then says to that king in 110.1, sit at my right hand. And that word sit, I, I think, recalls uh, Psalm 2. Do you remember Psalm 2? Why do the nations rage? And the people's plot a vain thing. You remember in the New Testament, that's quoted about the, the, the Romans and the Pharisees coming together to plot to crucify Jesus. Why do they plot together? And then Psalm 2 verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs, and then he will rebuke them in his anger. So the Lord says to my Lord, David says, Sit at my right hand. The one seated in the heavens is inviting the future king from David's line to come and sit at his right hand. And then the rest of Psalm 110 goes on to say, until I make your enemies your footstool. Uh, look, look back at Psalm 108, verse 13, where uh, the psalm says, with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. And now the enemies in 110.1 are the footstool under the foot, under the feet of the Davidic king. I want to suggest to you that this is evoking Genesis 3.15. The Lord said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he, the, the masculine singular seed of the woman, he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. That seems to be interpreted as the seed of the woman is going to stomp on the head of the serpent. And, and so the serpent is going to be his footstool and there's going to be a heel wound that results from that. I think, I think that points obliquely to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. So the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now this is, this is what the Lord says 
to the future king from David's line. Notice the quotation marks around that statement in Psalm 110 verse 1. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. There are going to be two quotations in this psalm, and they organize the whole psalm. That's the first of of the two. The second of the two is in verse 4, where the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Notice the quotations around you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. These two quotations, they organize the, 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 the material in Psalm 110, and they break it into two parts. The first part, sit at my right hand, is about the enthronement of the king. The second part, you are a priest forever, is about the Melchizedekian high priest being installed. So, so the psalm's going to fall into two parts. Uh, the enthronement of the king and the installation of the high priest. Now, after, after that first statement from the Lord in 110.1, it's like David starts cheering. Uh, Jeremy was telling me he was watching the University of Tennessee basketball game last night, and, um, and he was talking about how one of his kids began to cheer, and they all got involved. I won't tell you what one of his kids said. You might not like it. Uh, uh, anyway, but, but you understand cheering, right? That's what's happening here. David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit... Here's the Lord say to the future king from his line, sit at my right hand. And it's like David starts to celebrate. David starts to extol the king. And so he says there in verse 2, Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. I mean, it's almost like, it's almost like the way that my kids react when they see one of these highlights. I mean, last night, the Razorbacks, they got beat by Missouri. But at one point... Uh, there was an alley-oop thrown to Arkansas's really good center, and he caught the ball in the air, and then he did a reverse dunk on the goal. And my kids are like, Dad, did you see that? You know, they're telling me about the play. They're, they're extolling this. That's the way that David is re- responding to the future king from his life. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. And every word here is important. First, look at, look at verse 2 here. Yahweh sends forth. From Zion. This is the eternal God establishing the rule of the Davidic king. This is a, a reign that is not illegitimately founded. You know, we could read through the history of Israel and we could look at the way that uh, various kings, they, or various generals really, or captains, they decide, I want to be king. And so they murder the existing king. We could, we could think about the way that some elections in our world today, they're very predictable. I mean, every time Russia holds an election, we know what's going to happen, right? Vladimir Putin's going to get elected. And, and now China, their, their leader, has just declared himself emperor for life. I mean, this is the way that things go in the world. It's unjust. Well, when Yahweh sends forth from Zion the mighty scepter of the Davidic king, there is going to be nobody that can look at that situation and say there's something unjust here. There's something unwarranted here. No, it will be fully warranted. It will be exactly right. And everybody will affirm the justice of the reign of the king from David's line. Second, Yahweh sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter. You remember Psalm 2 again? The Lord says there are all these connections between Psalm, 1, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, speaking to their importance in, in the framework of the whole book. 
The book of Psalms is about Israel's hope, and Israel's hope is Israel's Messiah. So Psalm 2, the Lord says, in response to those wicked kings gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, the Lord says, as for me, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's what the Lord says. And now the Lord says, sit at my right hand. And then David says, Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. This word scepter is a very important word in the Bible. Um, One of the first instances of it is Genesis 49, where um, uh, Jacob prophesies about Judah in Genesis 49.10. He says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And then another really important scepter statement in the Bible is Numbers 24, verse 17, where the prophet Balaam says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall arise out of Israel. So so these, these statements about the scepter, they're being picked up and carried forward by David in Psalm 110. One of the reasons that um, The Lord of the Rings is such an enchanting story, one of the reasons that people love these books, is because of the way that we hear these indications of how Aragorn's reign, Aragorn, the son of Arathorn, it was prophesied. And and they've got these long-forgotten prophecies that are being evoked and reawakened, and, and people are beginning to hope in the coming of this king. Well, Tolkien's just borrowing from the Bible. Because in the Bible, you have these ancient prophecies of a future ruler who's one day going to set all things right. The hope of the world, the last best hope of the world, sorry, Ronald Reagan, is not the United States of America. It's not this country. The hope of the world is Jesus. Jesus is going to come. Yahweh is going to establish his reign. and, And Yahweh is going to send forth from Zion his mighty scepter prophesied of old, hoped for in the present to be realized in the future. And then he says, the Lord says there in, or or David continues to speak, I think in verse two, rule in the midst of your enemies. So David is cheering the future king on. And then he says in verse three, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. And as as I've thought about this, this verse it's helped me to read military history because so often in military history, what happened in this country in the Vietnam War is exactly what has happened in armies throughout the history of the world. This, this idea of conscription, the draft, where people have to be forced to serve, people that don't want to go fight, they're forced to go fight. So often across the history of the world, this is what has happened. I mean, you can read about it in World War I. Maybe you've heard about that famous... Uh, Christmas Eve truce. You, you know this story? You've got those, those men in trenches and no man's land in between and Christmas Eve comes and they all come out and they fraternize. Why? Because they're not mad at each other. They're just doing other people's bidding by fighting this war. They don't really want to be killing one another. But what's, what's said here in Psalm 110 verse 3 is that when Jesus reigns, there will be no need for a draft. There will be no need for conscription. He is going to be so compelling and so overwhelmingly good that people are going to offer themselves 
freely. That language may sound familiar from earlier parts of the Bible. You may be, maybe you've read about free will offerings. That's actually the language that's used here. It's like David is saying, your people are going to make themselves free will offerings on the day of your power. There will be this glad-hearted giving of ourselves when Christ reigns. An enthusiastic laying down of our lives on his behalf. And what we want to do, there's a point of application for you. What we want to do is we want to think about the greatness of this king. And first thing we want to do is we want to make sure that we don't have misplaced hopes. We don't want to place our end time uh, payoff hopes in some temporary government or in some temporary political arrangement. We want to place our end time payoff ultimate allegiance in the hands of the coming king. He's the one to whom we bow. Second, we want to offer ourselves to him now the way that we will want to offer ourselves to him then. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. And that's the way we want to offer ourselves to him now. The next line of verse 3, uh, the ESV translates this, in holy garments. But maybe you're familiar with the, the King James. The King James translated this in the beauties of holiness. And that's, that's literally what the text says. The, that, that phrase is interpreted by the ESV to refer to the holy garments that the armies of the coming king are going to wear. But think about the beauties of holiness. And, and, and I think that what's suggested here is that the day of the king's power is not only going to be overwhelmingly awesome in terms of might and power, what's connoted by the phrase, the day of your power. It's also going to be altogether holy and righteous and good, and that holiness is going to be beautiful. It's going to radiate out from the king. It's going to infect and and sweep over all of his people and the beauties of holiness will be what, what marks us, what is apparent, what people see when they look at us. And then it goes on to say, from the womb of the morning. And I think that phrase, the womb of the morning, is capturing the way that, that darkness connotes the reign of evil. And it, it, I mean, if I, if I were to say a great darkness has fallen over the land, I would sound like J.R.R. Tolkien in uh, The Lord of the Rings. This dark, but I would also, you would know what I mean. You, you would know that I mean that evil is now gaining power and darkness is falling over the land. But the womb of the morning connotes this piercing of the darkness. It connotes the, the, the daylight, the beginning of the light, stabbing out. Like, like the birth of the new day from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth. And, and you, you can almost see those, those crystalline drops of water on the blades of grass and the light shines through them and it looks like a field of diamonds. When the dew and, and, and the dew of the youth here, Fink is talking about the, the fresh, res, restored ability of the people of the Lord who are giving themselves to Him, to serve Him from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. So there will be no, 
No aged, wrinkled, incapacitated. Everyone will be resurrected in glory to stand for the king. So we get this first declaration where the Lord installs the future king from David's line, sit at my right hand. And then we get this Davidic celebration of, of the Lord sending forth the scepter. And, and um, I think what we have in verse 2 is something like the granting of authority to reign to the, the future king from David's line. And then in verse 3, we have the day of his power. And that brings us to verse 4, where he's not only installed as king, he's also installed as priest. So David continues. He says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. And, and maybe you think here of, of the author of Hebrews. I think you should. And the author of Hebrews saying in Hebrews 6, um, the Lord made an oath and he didn't have anything greater by which to swear. So he swore by himself. And if you remember the context there, he's talking about the promise that he made to Abraham. The Lord made an unbreakable promise to Abraham. And now David is saying the Lord has made that same kind of promise about the future king from my line. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. What David is saying is the way that God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 22, is the way that God made a promise to me in 2 Samuel 7. And what this does is it, it puts together the promise to Abraham and the promise to the future king from David's line. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, you're going to be a king and a priest like Melchizedek was, like Adam was, like the nation of Israel was intended to be. A king and a priest. A priest stands between the people and the God to, to make atonement for them and to mediate the knowledge of God to them. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us. Jesus, when he died on the cross, he stood between us and the wrath of God as our great high priest. He offered a once and for all sacrifice that makes it so that people can be ultimately, finally, completely cleansed from sin. And if you happen to be here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, what, what Hope Church is offering to you is the hope of forgiveness and reconciliation to the living God so that the high priest, Jesus, can mediate the knowledge of the living God to you. Because what's happened is the real and true God sent his son, who is the exact representation of who he is, to make him known. So that by knowing Jesus, you can know God. And, and so I'm standing here, here today urging you, if you don't already trust Christ, to turn away from your sin to put your hope in Jesus, and by knowing Christ, to know God. He is the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then verse 5. Again, it's like David starts cheering and responding to the decree of the Lord. And he says, the Lord is at your right hand. So here it is again. Uh, 109.31, he stands at the right hand of the needy. One ten one sit at my right hand. It's like, it's like Jesus is at God's right hand and God is at Jesus' right hand. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. 
Notice the similarity between the phrase in verse 3, the day of your power and the day of his wrath. Um, and, and, and turn on your, your Psalm 2 antennae again. Uh, you, remember, you remember what Psalm 2 says to the kings? It says, after it rehearses the, the, the decree to the future king from David's line, it says, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you be destroyed in the way. It's a warning of coming judgment. So the day of the power of the future king from David's line is going to be executed on the day of God's wrath. Verse 3 matches verse 5. And those kings that stood in opposition to Jesus, they're going to be shattered. Verse 6. I think verse 6, in the same way that verse 5 matches verse 3, verse 6 matches verse 2. Verse 6 he will execute judgment among the nations. So it's like the scepter in verse 2 that Yahweh sends forth from Zion that belongs to the king from David's line is the scepter that executes judgment. It's like the Lord says, I'm going to give you authority to reign and then the, the authority is executed. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. And then the, the last part of verse 6 reads, he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. But if you're looking at an ESV like I am, you've got a footnote on the word chiefs, and down in the lower margin, it says, or the head. Now think about this. He will shatter the head over the wide earth. That's an allusion to Genesis 3.15. This is, this is David saying, that promise to the seed of the woman that he would crush the head of the serpent, I'm going to reformulate that in poetic language and put it here. And the future king from my line is going to be the seed of the woman who's going to bring to pass the promises to Abraham and, and fulfill the, the promises to the future king from Judah's line and be the king that God is going to establish on the throne. You know, this is exactly what the New Testament claims about Jesus. That there's such perfect harmony between the Old Testament and the New. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. And then verse 7. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. What in the world is this verse talking about? Where, where is this coming from? Well, I think that when we come to a hard verse like this, what we should first do is think, do I know any other passages in this book that talk about water and a way. In other words, are these words that I'm finding in this verse that I don't understand, are they used elsewhere in this book? He will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and everything that he does prospers. Not so the wicked, they will be like chaff that the wind drives away. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. You see how these terms from Psalm 1 are, are, are being reused, I think, in Psalm 10. Psalm 110. So I think what Psalm 110 verse 7 is suggesting is the future king from David's line is going to be the blessed man who's like a tree planted by a stream of water. And then notice the contrast between the shattering of the head of the chiefs in verse 6 and the lifting up of the head of the future king from David's line in verse 7. Where does all this take us? What is this 
say to us? What this says to us, one, one thing it says to us is the wrath is certain. The day of God's wrath will come. And you should heed the warning of Psalm 2. If, if you're somebody that's opposed to God and opposed to His Messiah, you should hear Psalm 2 say, saying to you, Therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Kiss the son lest he become angry and you be destroyed in the way. He will certainly come. He will certainly execute judgment. It also, though, says to those of us who are already believers in Jesus, it says to us, every one of God's promises is yes and amen in Christ. This, this psalm also, in addition to, to reaffirming and, and, and echoing earlier promises in the Bible, the psalm also is beautiful, isn't it? It's, it's glorious the way that David has artistically picked up language from earlier in the Bible and then reformulated it to evoke these earlier promises and to encourage God's people. This psalm is written for our instruction and it's written for our encouragement. So Romans 15 verse 4, Paul says, he says, um, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction so that by the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Our hope, Jill and I on the way here this morning, we were um, talking with members of our church that are going through something awful. Uh, they've, they've got big problems that are beyond their ability to deal with. And, and this is the way that our problems in life go. They're, they're often beyond our capacity to understand and beyond our power to really fix. And our hope is not in medicine. And our hope is not in doctors. I'm not saying you shouldn't consult with doctors or take medicine if they... I'm just saying our hope ultimately is in Christ who's going to make all things new. Our hope is in Jesus because he has the power to take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Our hope is in Jesus because he has the, the ability to convict the sinner to turn from his way. And he has the ability to renew people so that they're all together changed. So this psalm gives us hope. It gives us confidence that Jesus, the future king, is going to come. And, and this psalm, along with the rest of the Bible, tells us that without reserve, without qualification, without nuance, we can celebrate Jesus. You know what I'm saying when I say without reserve or qualification or nuance? You know, some things you can be enthusiastic about, like, like uh, we live in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, one of my sons is a Louisville Cardinals fan, and then it's almost like you have to insert this footnote. Well, until this season. Until all these scandals came out, we were Louisville fans. You don't have to insert any footnotes about Jesus. You don't have to qualify it. You don't have to nuance it. You can wholeheartedly, unreservedly, with, with no hedging, no, no trying to balance the statement, just say, we worship Jesus. We love Jesus. We accept everything Jesus tells us to do. He's king, he's Lord, and he's worthy of all that we have. And we will offer ourselves freely on the day of his power. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have appointed a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And Lord, we thank you that the priest that you appointed has no need like those earlier priests to offer sacrifices in an ongoing, continual way. We praise you that he offered himself once for all. And we praise you that 
because of His greatness and because of His purity and His righteousness, He satisfied your wrath. He propitiated your justice. He reconciled all things to you. And Lord, we praise You that that when He comes, we can be confident that everything will be right. Everything will be good. And no one will be able to conduct an investigation or hold a hearing or have an inquest that's going to turn up some scandal or some corruption or some payoff or something unseemly. Lord, we praise You that You are righteous and that Christ is righteous and that we can worship Him with everything that we are. We give ourselves to You in His name. Amen.